right, so Psalm 132, um, in our next to last week in the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, Psalm 132 is a little bit different than uh, the rest of the Psalms that we've been going through. Uh, the first and most obvious thing about it is it's the longest of the Psalms of Ascent. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate that. Uh, uh, and it's the longest by quite a bit. It's at least double everything else, but for good reason. Um, this is a Psalm that you really can kind of go back um, almost all the way into Genesis, all the way through Revelation and find ties to the entire Bible through this one psalm. Um, there's a lot of history and a lot of historical context that we have to understand uh, when it comes to this psalm that will kind of help us uh, go through and understand what is being said to us here in this psalm. Uh, but there's also a lot of future that's included in this psalm. Um, and there's some present for the people at that time uh, included in it as well. So it does uh, encompass a, a large amount of time um, in what it is covering. Uh, so uh, we've got quite a lot to get through. I don't want to scare you with the fact that I've got notes in two different places here, uh, but there are, there are a lot of things that uh, we're gonna get through. And I also did, I learned from uh, Russell last week when he said he didn't mark his Bible with all the different verses that, well, I've got my little marks here and I've got a lot of them. So we're gonna be going to a lot of different uh, places uh, in the Bible, because again, I think one of the fascinating things about this particular psalm is the interconnectedness, interconnectedness of the Old Testament with the New Testament. If there is a psalm, and of course the whole entire Bible we know is about Jesus, but this particular psalm absolutely ties what is promised in the Old Testament with the proof of what happens in the New Testament. All right. So I want us to understand that before we get into this, and we will be going through some of the history of, of what is going on here. So let's go ahead and read. We'll read the entire thing. Um, it's 18 verses, but it's not that long. And uh, then we'll come back and, and go through uh, each part. So starting in verse one, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we have heard of it in Ephrathah. We have found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. 
This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but on his crown will shine. So, this is the, a psalm about David and his experience with bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and his desire to want to build a house for God, to want to build a dwelling place for God. If you uh, go to 2 Samuel, you can find the story of what happens uh, here with David. David has, uh, has brought the ark into Jerusalem. And he is concerned, uh, maybe he's not quite the right word, but he's, he's kind of got a, a, a bad feeling about the place that he is dwelling because he is dwelling in a place fit for a king, and where the ark is located. And it's troubling to him. And he wants to do something about that. And what is it that he wants to do? Right, he wants to create a place for that uh, ark to dwell, for God's presence to be. Because that's what the Ark of the Covenant really was a symbol of, is God's presence. And so he goes to the prophet Nathan and he tells the prophet Nathan what his plan is. You know, the, I want to build a place for the Ark of the Covenant, I build a place which God's presence can be. And Nathan at first goes along with it. He says, yeah, I think that that's a great idea. I think you should do that. But then God comes to David and lets David know, or God comes to Nathan, and through Nathan, lets David know that he will not be the one who will build the temple in which the Ark of the Covenant will stay. Instead, it would be through his family, through his son, and of course it was Solomon who would do that. Now, there are one big reason why David would not be allowed uh, to uh, create the, the temple, to build the temple. Right? Does anybody know what that might be? He was a warrior, exactly. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10, 11 tells us that there will not be a, a place for the Lord to dwell until all the enemies are subdued. But not even that. David himself said to Solomon as he is preparing Solomon to take over and as he is preparing Solomon to build this temple, I cannot do this because I have shed too much blood. This is what the Lord has said to me. So David has uh, this great desire to have the, a dwelling place for God, but God is not going to let David do that. And so we're going to kind of look at that. But I think from that, we get uh, one of our big ideas from, from tonight. And there are a couple here. But one of the big ideas that, that we see is 
We see in this psalm, God placed to the side man's best intentions and best plans for his even better purposes and plans. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to this a, a little bit later as well, but it also shows that God's promises are greater than man's promises. Now, David absolutely would do everything that he could do to make sure that this temple was built. And we'll get to some of that uh, in a little bit. But just kind of keep that in mind. David's best of plans, his well-intentioned plans, were still superseded by God's plans and God's better plans and his better purpose. So we'll get into the actual text now. Uh, before we, we do that, um, we do not have a clear author of this psalm. Right? We know it's not David, unless David is writing in the third person here, which I don't believe that he is doing. He does not refer to himself as David in his other psalms. Um, so we don't have a, a, a certain indication of uh, who authored this psalm. But there's a general belief that it was Solomon. It could have been someone else, but there's a, a lot of belief that it was Solomon. One is because Solomon would have, uh, would have known of exactly what was going on in this situation. Two, part of the dedication or the prayer at the dedication of the temple that Solomon had is included in this. So there's a, a chance that it was actually Solomon uh, that was author of this, and it does make some sense that that would be the case, uh, but we don't have a, a certainty that he was the author. But we definitely know it's not, not David, but most likely it would be uh, Solomon. So first thing that we want to look at here is we, we kind of have three different sections uh, that we, we're going to look at here. And the first part is David's promise to God. All right? So we just kind of went through what David wanted to do. And the psalmist starts off with kind of uh, a recap of exactly what David want wants to do. And he says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. Now, I want to stop there and kind of go over this verse because I think it's important to understand what is exactly is being said here um, when the psalmist is writing about all the hardships that David has endured. We don't have here any certainty on the exact hardships that David had endured. We do know from David's life uh, that he had had a difficult life in a lot of ways, right? From the very time that David kind of comes onto the scene, what is going on? Samuel is with Jesse looking for a king, and Jesse presents all of his sons except for one, David. So within his own family, he kind of had a place of lower standing. They didn't even, Jesse, his own father didn't even consider that David could be the one that could be chosen as king. Um, 
David certainly had uh, situations where his life was threatened, right? Uh, Saul uh, threatened his life. Uh, he had to flee uh, because of that. Um, he went through the, you know, the wars that he went through, his own sin that caused great suffering in his life. I mean, we know that David was an adulterer. We know that David was a murderer. Uh, there are also other times where David was very clearly disobedient to God. Uh, Chronicles tells us about uh, him numbering the people of Jerusalem, which he was not supposed to do. So there was some, some big stuff there in David's life as far as sin goes. Um, he also had experienced some real hardships in getting the ark to Jerusalem, which is probably part of what is being uh, described here uh, because this, this uh, passage here is, there's a lot to do with the ark of the covenant. So it's quite possible and probably likely that the hardships that are being referred to here are the difficulties that he had in getting the ark to Jerusalem, right? Some of those difficulties include finding the ark, right? If you recall the story, the ark was gone for a while, right? At one point, it was in the hands of the Philistines. At another point, they weren't exactly sure where it was, right? So he had to actually find the ark in order to get it to where he wanted to go. Then, when he put together a plan to have the ark taken to Jerusalem, something really bad happened. Do we recall what happened? Yeah, as David has, is leading, and they've, they've done a lot of planning on how to, to get the ark to where it needs to go, the oxen stumble and the ark begins to fall and a man named Uzzah touches it and he dies instantly. Why? Because you're not allowed to touch the ark. And so that particular uh, story kind of put a little damper on what was going on with the ark and getting it to uh, Jerusalem and they actually stopped uh, the, the journey to get the ark to Jerusalem for a little while. Um, so there had been some difficulties in him even getting the ark to where, it wanted, where he wanted it to be. And so the, the author of this is saying to God, to the Lord, remember this. He's praying for God to remember the hardships that he had endured. Now, I want to kind of make sure that we understand that I don't necessarily think that the, the author is looking at this and he's saying, he's like enumerating all the great things or all the things that David had done, right? And saying, all right, here's the list of everything that David has done to, to do this, uh, to get this to you. I don't think that that's exactly what he's saying, but if we go to Hebrews chapter six, if you can get there. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. The writer of Hebrews says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints 
as you still do. So, would it be, I guess, um, I, I, would it be acceptable, I guess, as a, a good word, for someone to say a prayer for someone and ask for God to remember them and the, the example that they have said or the life that they have lived or the things that they have done and praising God for that and to have God remember that? Yeah, absolutely it would be. Absolutely it would be. And we should be living a life in which someone would be able to say about us, and not that we're doing it for uh, other people's glory, for people to edify us, for people to look at us as something special, because we're not. All right? We're all sinners saved by grace. Right? No matter what position we think that we may hold, that's, we're all sinners saved by grace. But wouldn't it be great to have someone say about you, to have some prayer? Remember all the things that this person has been through. Because what is one of the things that we've been talking about in the Second Corinthians as we've been going through that in the last few chapters, last few Sundays, what is the big thing, one of the big things that Paul's been talking about? Trials, suffering, right? And he's telling us that as a follower of Christ that we will suffer, Right? Tells us that multiple times the Bible tells us that. Jesus himself tells us, if you follow me, then they will hate you. All right? So we know that that is part of the Christian walk with God. That's part of being a follower of God is suffering, is hardships. What's going on if you're not having a lot of suffering or hardships? Well, first of all, praise God for those times, right? When we don't have the suffering, when we're in the time and the seasons of blessings, right? But we know that we're going to have sufferings if we're following God. If we're not, then maybe there's some distance between us and God that we need to, to try to close, right? If you're not suffering in any way, then how close are we really following God? Because we're told that we would be uh, suffering, that we would go through trials. So I think that this is a, as the psalmist is writing this, um, it's a great reminder for us that, yes, we're going to go through these, but it's also a good thing that we go through these hardships. So he continues and he basically gives uh, what uh, David had wanted to do, right? He swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Now that phrase, the mighty one of Jacob, of course, is referring to God. And it absolutely is referring, when it says the mighty one, it's referring to God's uh, power. And we get that Isaiah chapter 49, verse 26 gives a very, very good, detailed description of the power of the mighty one of Jacob. Isaiah wrote, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, 
the mighty one of Jacob. Right? So Isaiah refers to him in this same way that the psalmist writes here. And of course, judging by that verse, we see the strength, the power of the mighty one of Jacob, of God. But also, I think that the, the, it's purposeful here. Of course it's purposeful because it's God's word, but the term of, and using Jacob in this particular situation is done for a reason because Jacob also had a very similar wish that David had. Right? What was it that Jacob wanted to do for, for God? If you recall back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 28, there goes one of my cards. We'll start in verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, and this, he's had a dream, so he woke up from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome in this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz as its first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I shall come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. All right? So the fact that the psalmist here is referring to Jacob um, certainly is referring to the strength of God, but I think that there's a connection between Jacob, who had this desire to build a house for God, and David who had a desire to build this house for God. It's, it's just one of those things that, uh, that just amazes me, again, about the connectedness of God's word, right? How it just, you know, we, we have the, all the way back from creation till the very end that's not even happened yet, and how it's all really connected there. So um, I, I found that interesting, so I thought we would point that out. But David has a, a real desire for God's presence. And he notes that when he says, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. All right? I think what we see here is his passion and desire for the presence of God to be there, right? To be there with them. Um, and of course, God's presence was there with them, but David wanted that closeness. He wanted that relationship with God. He was referred to as a man after God's own heart, but he's expressing this great desire to have this presence for God. And again, why, why did he feel that way? because of the place that he had that he felt was superior to what God was, God's presence was in. And he thought, why am I in this great palace? Why am I in this wonderful place? And God is off in this tent. Now, of course, we know that um, 
um, God had said, you know, when did I ever ask you to build something like this for me? You know, he, he said, I didn't ask any of the judges to do it. I didn't ask any other person to build. I've never asked for anything like this. But I do, do think that God was, uh, uh, he was, well, I, I don't know if the word appreciative is the word I, I want to use, but he did recognize the heart of David and David wanting to do this uh, for him. But it's, it kind of brought me to a question in my own mind and, and I think for, for us as individuals and us for churches, how much do we long for God's presence in our own life? As believers, the Holy Spirit is there, right? As a church body in this room tonight, is God's presence here? Yeah, absolutely, right? And that's one of the, the beautiful things about this is we kind of learn that God's presence is with us at all times. But the desire for it as well, right, is really, really important. We have God's presence there, but that relationship, that desire to have that relationship, that desire to be in God's house where his presence is. I look in this room tonight, we've got a pretty good crowd in here, right? Thank God for, for everyone that is in here. When we have the Sunday morning services, right, we get a lot of people that are here. And thank God for those people that want to be where God's presence is. That's a, something that should be passionate in our life. Seeking God's presence listening to what the Holy Spirit has to say to us and, and, and being in that constant state of mind and also being aware that God is there with us as we go through our life. You know, um, it's, well, we know that we're all sinners. We know that we're all going to sin. Um, when you consider, though, that God is with you and God is there whenever you're doing whatever it is that you shouldn't be doing, all right, how much thought do we give to that? All right, when we're talking to someone, maybe you know, I, will, I will be the first to raise my hand that as this time of the year rolls around and everybody returns and the roads get absolutely crazy, that the sinner in me comes out <laughs> quite a bit, way more often than I'd like for it to. Um, it's not my fault, though. It's everybody else's fault for the way that they drive. But, you know, you get in these moments where, you know, you're in this, this traffic jam and you're going, you're, your mind's going crazy and you, you might have these really bad thoughts about the people that are around you. Right? But we have to remember God is there with us. Right? And I have to keep in mind that God is there with me. And no matter how much I may want to look at someone else in a, a bad way or say something to God's there. His presence is there with us always. And so we should remember that and we should desire that. It should be something that, as, as David uh, talks about here, you know, he didn't even want to go into his own house, he didn't want to sleep until he found a place to where he could secure God's presence there. 
So that desire, that passion that he had for that. But as we, as we talked about, it was not God's will that David would build this uh, place, but uh, uh, that it would be Solomon that would ultimately do it. Then we go down to verse uh, 6. Uh, and, and really, we kind of can look at verses 6 through 9 together, where we see uh, the fulfillment of the promise to God with the, with the temple. It says, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. Now, that is uh, Bethlehem, is, is Ephrathah. Um, that is actually Bethlehem, which is interesting that that is the place uh, that they heard from it because where would God come from once he came to this earth? From Bethlehem, right? And we found it in the fields of Jar. Now that is actually referring to a specific place where they did find the ark. Uh, so that's a historical reference. Then it, uh, the psalmist writes, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. So here are the, the people um, who are ascending to Jerusalem. And of course, they're as they're going on this ascent to Jerusalem, as they're going to, to where the ark is, to where God's presence is, they certainly would be praising the fact that they are able to do that. I think that's what we see here. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Um, and they're, they're basically... Praying to the Lord here, oh Lord, go to your resting place. Be there. We want you to, to be there. And of course, he was going to be there. Let your priest be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. Now, we're going to see this again as we get to the uh, end of this. So I'm going to just kind of leave that here for right now and not really go over this right now. We'll come back to it. But I do want to want you to notice here that the priests are clothed with righteousness. Right? That term clothed is an important uh, uh, term. And your saints shout for joy. Right? So just keep that in the back of your mind as we get to the end of this. We're going to see a little bit of a contrast, and then we're going to kind of go over exactly what this is talking about. One thing, though, I will say, but in, in regards to this, is the priest clothing was an important uh, part of what they were, right? If you go to Exodus chapter 28, in Exodus uh, chapter 29, before it's even described about the priest, it's described about their clothing, about their, the vestments that they would wear. And it was meant to be um, an external show of the, um, the righteousness that they were supposed to have, the external show of, of what they were supposed to be in their relationship to God. 
So just keep that in mind, and uh, we're going to kind of come back to that uh, when we get to the end of the uh, psalm here. So we first have seen here uh, the promise that David has made to God, right, and what he wants to do. And of course, uh, that promise would be fulfilled ultimately through his son, but then we want to kind of look at God's promise to David. And this is where we kind of get the, the big idea that we were talking about, where, again, man's best intentions and plans are superseded by God's better plans and purposes. And man's promises are superseded by God's greater promises. One of the reasons that that is true is it's difficult for us to keep our promises, right? And we're going to see how the psalmist describes the, the promises that God makes to us. Now, and again, in this particular situation, David would follow through to the best of his ability to get the temple built, Right? He helped collect the materials. He, there was a lot of stuff that he did. He helped to pick the land. Uh, that he, he was, while he would not ultimately build it, he didn't just leave it to the side in his life. He still did some stuff to, to make sure that it was going to happen. But we see that God comes back to David and is going to make some promises to him. And of course, that is included in... Um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, when the story is being presented. As David has said, I want to build you a house. God makes one of the great promises in the Bible to David. He says, I'm going to build you a house. Right? And ultimately, from that house would come what? Jesus, the Messiah. So, Imagine that, right? Just think about that for a second, you know, and, and David's humanity, and he was, a, he was a human, flawed, right? There are lots of things about David that were, were great examples for us, lots of things about David that we would not want to have in our lives. And for God to say to him, I'm going to build you a house. And it kind of, uh, reminded me of the, the promise that God is building a mansion for me in heaven, right? And while I want God to dwell with me here, the fact that one day I will be able to dwell with him there, that promise that is there, that hope that is there, is it's unbelievable, to think that God would take sinners like us, I'm including you all in this, I'm not the only one, <laughs> right? That God would do that for us uh, and that make that promise is pretty amazing. And I hope that we don't ever uh, lose sight of that. But it starts in verse 10, he says, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure Oath from which he will not turn back. The psalmist is making it clear here. God's promises 
are true. He's going to stick to them. They are sure he will not turn back. Praise God for that, right? Thank God for the, the promises that he keeps to us. He says, one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. So the first part of this promise that he makes to David is your sons are going to be forever on the throne. Right? And ultimately through that, we'll, we'll get to this, it will come the final king who would be Jesus. Now there was a contingency here. Right? If your sons keep my covenant, covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them. Now that didn't necessarily happen, did it? Right? So it could, it could be for some people maybe, well, wait a second. There was a time where uh, the, the line of David where there weren't kings. Right? We know that the king stopped at some point. So how was there a king on the throne forever? We'll get to that, all right? But just, just stay right there, all right? So we see that, uh, uh, that the Lord has made this oath to David and that his sons will be on the throne forever, right? So just keep that in mind. We're going to kind of come back uh, to that. Then we're going to go down to uh, verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. So I think first thing that uh, uh, we can look at, we can see from this, is God has chosen the place that he wants to be. Right, the he had the entire world <laughs> that he could have chosen as his dwelling place, the place that he wanted to be, and he chose Zion. He said, "This is the place that I want to be, um, and this is my resting place forever." As I guess, it, it, as I think about it. I'm grateful for the fact that God has chosen me as a sinner and as a place that he would want to dwell, right? That he would want to be with me. Right? He chose to save me. He came to this world to save those of us who would follow him. I think that's pretty amazing that he would choose to do that. He could choose anywhere and he chose to dwell in this particular place he could choose anyone and thank God that uh, uh, I was shown at a very young age my need for a savior and God saved me and now he dwells with me and, and I'm thankful for that. Then he goes on to say, and, and this is kind of where, um, where I kind of want to kind of go back and tie in some of the stuff uh, that we were talking about earlier and, and bring it all together. He goes on to say, I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Now, uh, 
I think it's important to know here that, that God is promising here that he will provide, but he is also saying, I will satisfy her poor with bread. Right? So if there is poor, then that's not an indication that every single person is going to have, is going to be rich, right? I think that that's a conclusion that we can draw here. Uh, but he will bless, he will provide, he will give enough, he will take care of us, even if what the world may consider to be poor, even if what we might look at material, that we don't have the material stuff that maybe others have, the, the promise that God is giving here of always providing for us, always having uh, uh, provisions for us, is a great promise that we can hold on to. Um, yes, there are times in our life, no doubt about it, when we have to deal with difficult situations where people have worries about how they're going to make it from one week to the next, right? How they're going to make it, uh, how they're going to take care of the responsibilities that they may have in their lives, right? But God will provide somehow, some way, in his time and in his way, he will provide. He's not going to let his people uh, go without. Now, I think that's an important thing to understand because um, it can be easy to get to a point in our life where we maybe think that God has in some way forsaken us or forgotten about us or, hey, God, don't you realize what I'm going through? Don't you realize the position that I'm currently in? The answer to that is yes, he absolutely does. He knows exactly what you're going through, and he will provide. He will find, uh, he will put you in a position to where you will make it through. And I think that that's a great promise that, uh, that we have from here. Then we kind of wrap it up here, and, and this is kind of where I want to tie up some uh, some stuff that we're, we're looking at earlier. Verse 16, we get a contrast to what we saw in, verses, in verse 9. So again, if we go back to verse 9, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. Now here, as God is... Uh, fulfilling his promise and, and making his promise to, to David and, and to the people. He says, her priest I will clothe with salvation. Now that's a different word than righteousness, right? And her saints will shout for joy and some of the um, uh, some of the interpretations have, will shout with joy forever which is different than just shout for joy. And again, it's this contrast, first of all, that when God is involved, it is better than what we can do, right? 
Um, Ephesians chapter 3. If I can find it here. I lost my little card for this. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Paul is writing, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Right? So we see this, the, the psalmist writing about the, the priest being clothed with righteousness, but God provides salvation even better than righteousness. And her saints will shout with joy. Well, here, saints will shout with joy forever, even better than just shouting for joy. So we get this understanding that what God does is better than what man does. But I also uh, think that this is an important thing for us to understand when it comes to our leaders in the church and what it does to the saints or the people that are in the church. And how important it is for us to have godly, gospel-led leaders in this church, right? How important it is for uh, for them, for our leaders to be those that are uh, committed to God's word, committed to um, the gospel, committed to sharing that, committed to preaching that to others because with that, he says, comes salvation. Right? The priest I will clothe with salvation. And what happens when we get salvation? We get joy. Right? Uh, Russell talked about this a little bit last week. What is joy? Joy is knowing that the most important thing that needs to be taken care of, which is our eternal salvation, has been taken care of. Right? That is real joy. Right? We're not talking about happiness. We're talking about a different thing. So when the priests are clothed with salvation, and there is salvation for an individual, or for others within the church, then we shout for joy. Right? That's a great thing to have, right? Um, one of the things that uh, I love to see, um, I'm a deacon, I'm chairman of the deacons, and one of the, the great things that we get to do as deacons is we get to be there uh, during the baptisms. Right? So we kind of help out with the baptisms and, uh, you know, just help simple stuff like getting them the T-shirts that they wear and having towels prepared for them and, and uh, stuff like that. The last one that I was able to do was uh, there was a young lady with her mother and father. And I, I think that she was probably late teens, maybe early 20s. And uh, she was getting baptized. 
and she was kind of anxious about it the whole time. Um, and the mother and the father were very anxious about it too. And, you know, uh, and I think that they, they were anxious or excited about it because they understood the symbolism and the seriousness about what she was getting ready to do. Her public proclamation of her salvation was getting ready to happen. And of course, she goes in and she gets baptized. And what does everyone in the auditorium do when she got baptized? Well, all starts clapping, right? Yeah, you get some woo-hoos and you get some amens and some hallelujahs and some praise the Lord, right? Because we are seeing the proclamation of that young lady saying, I have been saved. And so there's joy with that. Now, behind the scenes, I was able to see one of the things that was really, really touching. They got done. I come down. I'm gathering up all the towels. I come down, and she's in mom and dad's arms, and she's sobbing, right? That was, and it wasn't tears of sadness. It was tears of joy, right, that was coming out of her in that, that moment in time. So having these leaders that are clothed in salvation, where the internal is matching what the external, because again, if you go back and you read Exodus 28 and you, you see what is um, being described and how important it was that their clothing represented and was done in such a way to represent who they were, when the internal is clothed in that way, then you have leaders in this church that are preaching the gospel. We have people that come to salvation and then there is joy. And is there anything better than that? There's nothing better than that. As a believer, when you receive it yourself and when you see others receive it, and especially those of us who have family members who for years and years and years and years we may have prayed for them and they finally come to know Jesus. Or friends or, or co-workers or people that we've prayed for and they come to know Jesus. The joy that is there, right? And all this has happened because God decided to come dwell on this earth and perform the sacrifice that we needed and therefore we had that uh, salvation. All right, I only got a couple minutes here, so... Um, We'll, we'll wrap this up. Uh, verses 17 and 18, uh, the psalmist writes, There I'll make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Now, there are, uh, I think that we can look at this in two different ways. One, we can look at this as the promise to David and that... Uh, the horn to sprout for David. The horn represents strength, right? So the horn to sprout for David is a promise that the kingdom would grow and would be strong, right? The lamp here represents succession when it comes to David, right? You can look up uh, 1 Kings eleven thirty six 36 and 15, 4. And it specifically says, 
about the succession that there would be a lamp, right, to, in the succession of David. So it's referring to that. Um, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So we're, we're looking at uh, David in this situation, but I think that we're also looking at uh, the Messiah, at Jesus. Luke chapter 1, and I'll, I'll read this and uh, wrap this up here in just a second. Luke chapter 1, verses 68 and 69 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Then 78 and 79, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light, a lamp, to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So I think that this, this final part here, we see uh, a promise to David, but we also see the promise of the coming Messiah and what he will be, right? And ultimately, he will clothe his enemies with shame, right? He is going to, to be the final winner when it's all said and done. So as we look at this psalm, um, we are, I think that the, the big takeaway again is God's plans are better than our plans and his promises are better than our promises and he will keep those promises. And the promises that he has made to us, right, if they don't bring great joy to you, a smile to your face, warm your heart, and, and, and thankful and grateful for what he has promised us, uh, then, you know, we need to take a look at ourselves and, and, and examine that. Uh, and of course, through this, we talked about that the uh, David sons being on the throne forever. Luke 1, 32. When uh, the angel Gabriel is coming to see Mary, right? Uh, Luke 1, actually we'll do uh, 31 and 32. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him to the throne of his father, David. So God kept his promise. The eternal king would sit on the throne of David. David.